you're traveling through another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A journey into a wondrous show whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the RSS feed up ahead. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is one man's examination of the Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer. Each podcast, I share my first impressions, analysis, and overall thoughts on Rod Serling's iconic series, one episode at a time. I also cover modern anthology science fiction series, such as Black Mirror and Jordan Peele's Twilight Zone reboot, in bonus episode review series. You can find more of Anthology, as well as a full episode archive at anthologypod.com. And if you want to contact me, you can use the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, tweet me at ovanthologypod, or send an email to matt at obsessiveviewer.com. And today on the podcast, I will be discussing The Odyssey of Flight 33. It's the 18th episode of The Twilight Zone's second season, and it originally aired on February 24th, 1961. And yeah, that's what I'll be doing today. Um, I do want to mention, I keep... I. I should really make a habit of doing this every episode, but thank you to Tony Troxell from geekinginindiana.com and the Indiana Geeking Podcast and the whole Geeking in Indiana family of podcasts for providing the opening narration for uh, the podcast here um, over the Twilight Zone theme music. So thanks, Tony, and check out geekinginindiana.com. Um, yeah, before I get into the episode and everything, I do have a couple of pieces of housekeeping. Um, first, uh, I bought a new Twilight Zone shirt, um, <laughs> at, uh, tpublic.com. Um, that's where I get a lot of my shirts. It's kind of pricey, but, oh, sort of, but it's, it's, uh, it's really good to kind of get some cool, uh, t-shirts. But anyway, I recently bought one that's, uh, pretty cool. I'll put a link in the show notes, but it's basically a, um, it's, it's a silhouette of Serling's head, um, and inside like where the brain is um it's just a bunch of like references to the twilight zone like different things here and there it's it's really cool and has like kind of the white spiral uh behind it it's it's a pretty cool shirt and then i also got uh bought a bought a shirt that's just the it just says the twilight zone and has like a star map and everything um, anyway, uh, so yeah, so I was just excited about that and also, uh, make sure if you want, like, if you want to support the podcast, uh, a good way to do that is by buying an anthology shirt, um, <laughs> from TeePublic. We have an obsessive viewer merch store on TeePublic.com and, uh, included in that merch is, um, anthology. Uh, you can get a t-shirt with the anthology logo, which I think looks pretty sharp, so check that out links in the show notes all that yeah and uh final piece of housekeeping is uh thank you to horror movie yearbook it's this great podcast where uh over at obsessiveviewer.com we've collaborated with with them and the whole midwest podcast network um in the, in the past but uh horror movie yearbook is a podcast that kind of is a deep dive into horror movies and they take different horror movies from from the same year and kind of compare and contrast them with, uh, the current events of the, of the time and everything. And they have like fun bonus episodes and it's just, it's a really fun podcast. But anyway, they released a bonus episode, uh, just recently, like within the past couple of days, I think. Um, and, uh, they gave me a nice shout, shout out, um, cause they talked about Jordan Peele's new Twilight Zone reboot and, uh, they uh they kind of mentioned me my <laughs> mentioned me by name and uh said and i quote he knows his twilight zone stuff so i'm fooling someone <laughs> um but yeah but anyway thank you to horror movie yearbook you can check check them out on twitter at hm yearbook and uh at horrormovieyearbook.com so uh that'll do it for uh for housekeeping and everything. Let's dive into the Odyssey of Flight 33. Now, of course, I'm going to uh read a plot summary courtesy of The Twilight Zone Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grahams Jr. This plot description and the review that follows is going to be extremely spoiler heavy, so I'm going to uh warn you that if you haven't seen the episode and you don't want to be spoiled, 
why are you listening to this? Um, and go back, watch it on any of the streaming uh, platforms it's available on or DVD or Blu-ray, and then come back and listen to my review. So, warning out of the way, here's the plot description for The Odyssey of Flight 33. Global Airlines Flight 33, a passenger jet airliner four minutes behind the flight plan, picks up a freak tailwind and finds itself traveling at a supersonic speed. After a flash of light and a deafening roar, the passengers and crew find themselves in a situation that can only be written off as an atmosphere phenomenon. No radio contact can be established, and in an effort to make visual contact, the plane drops to a lower elevation to discover they have traveled smack dab in the middle of the prehistoric period. Captain Farver, in command of the jet liner, jet airliner, knows that they cannot possibly land in this era. He orders the crew to attempt a recreation, a recreation of the same situation that occurred, hoping to travel back uh, to the present. Picking up the same freak tailwind, the airliner manages to travel forward in time, only, only not far enough, since the 1939 New York World's Fair can be seen from the windows. Realizing they cannot land in 1939, the captain decides to reveal the situation to the panicked passengers and asks them to pray. In desperation, the captain decides to try again, hoping the third time's a charm. All right, so talent rundown for this episode. Uh, the Odyssey of Flight 33 stars John Anderson as Captain uh, Captain Skipper Farver. Uh, I recognized him as the car salesman in Psycho. And this is also his second of four Twilight Zone episodes. He previously played Gabriel in A Passage for Trumpet. And the next we'll see of him is in, uh, is in the episode of late, I think, of Cliffordville from season four. And he also appeared in one episode of The Outer Limits in 1963 called Nightmare. Um, yeah. And, uh, co-starring as, uh, First Officer Craig is Paul Comey. This is his second of three Twilight Zone episodes. First is People Are Alike All Over. And the next episode will be The Parallel in season four. Sandy Kenyon. Uh, plays Navigator Hatch, and this is his first of three Twilight Zone episodes. Next, we'll see if him is the shelter next season in season three, uh, which that's an episode I am very excited about because I just recently uh, just, I guess, discovered or um, I caught wind of what uh, that plot is, and I realized that it's uh, something that The Simpsons uh, handled, and it's... uh, I, I just, I think that that, I have high hopes for that episode. Um, anyway, Sandy Kenyon was also in a, uh, was in, uh, Sterling's Playhouse 90 episode, A Town Has Turned to Dust, which I covered in a previous episode of the podcast. He also appeared in one episode of One Step Beyond in 1959 called Front Runner, which by the way, One Step Beyond, um, all the episodes are available on Amazon Prime. So if you want to get a taste of, uh, another, sci-fi anthology from uh the same era as the twilight zone check it out on amazon prime i've actually watched a few episodes it's it's not bad um and then also uh sandy kenyon also appeared in one episode of the outer limits in 1964 titled counterweight and rounding out the cast is wayne hefley as second officer wyatt this is his first of two twilight zones next we'll see if him is black leather jackets in season five Writer for this episode was Rod Serling, with some assistance from his brother Robert Serling. Uh, Serling originally developed the idea for the episode when he learned that American Airlines had a mock-up of a 707 interior uh, that was previously used for flight attendant training um, that they would make available uh, to TV or film production companies. And the kind of anecdote of that is that, uh, according to The Twilight Zone Companion by Mark Secree, uh, he and his brother Robert were, uh, hanging out, I guess. I don't know. Um, uh, it's just a weird, like, oh, hanging out in the fifties, but, um, they were or sixties, I guess at this point, but anyway, he, uh, they were, they went to Rod's house and I guess Rod had picked up some mail and one of the mails was a brochure from American airlines saying that like, oh, Hey, we have this cockpit. If you, if you want to license it for a film, uh, or TV production and, 
the way that it's uh, told in the Twilight Zone Companion is that Rod kind of like that got the gears turning in Rod's head and he was like kind of like that was the only piece of mail that he opened and then he and Robert were going somewhere um, and he told Robert that he was he was to drive (laughs) Um, and according to uh, Robert Serling that never happened like Rod always drove so um, yeah so anyway he kind of the machinations uh, the his his wheels kept spinning and then he asked his brother he asked Rob uh Robert Serling um just questions about like what would happen if this happened in an airplane and everything um so that led to Robert Serling um helping Rod with the cockpit dialogue for the show um he basically uh was given I guess parameters by Rod and Robert wrote out uh, or dictated some, um, some dialogue given the situation and everything. I guess he had uh, discussed the show's premise with a trans world airlines captain. And uh, yeah, so then he gave the, the notes to Rod and then that's why we get such a clear and um, authentic uh, dialogue, aviation dialogue in this episode. And it's worth knowing that Robert Serling was a, uh, an aviation writer. Um, like he, he wrote, uh, stories based on aviation and stuff. So that's pretty cool. Um, uh, this kind of collaboration also didn't end, uh, with the twilight zone. He also helped Rod with, uh, some dialogue in the television movie in 1966 called the doomsday flight, which, um, is basically, I think it's, I think it's a story where a, uh, abort a flight, there's a bomb, and if the plane goes below a certain altitude, it explodes. Kind of like speed in the air, but, you know, several decades before. Um, so, which, that, uh, I'm not gonna make that Simpsons reference. Anyway, um, so yeah, uh, and that was meant to be, uh, the Doomsday Flight is that, here we go. Um, the Doomsday Flight, the Doomsday Flight is available in its entirety on YouTube, by the way. Um, it was actually going to be the bonus review for this episode, but I, I haven't been, I don't have the time to do the bonus reviews anymore, so, uh, apologies, uh, on that. Um, or at least the bonus episodes as I, or bonus reviews as I used to do them, so, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of having some, uh, I don't know. I'm thinking I might do something similar. Um, not to the extent that I did, but I might bring back bonus, uh, bonus reviews, uh, to the episodes, but not in the same way that I did before. Um, I might talk about it in a later, uh, episode or in the weeks to come. I'm still kind of formulating, formulating it in my head, but if you, uh, have any feedback, if you want to, uh, share it, feel free to email or, uh, message me on Facebook or tweet me if you want, uh, more than just Twilight Zone here. So anyway, uh, director for this episode was Justice Addis. This is his first of three Twilight Zone episodes. Next will be uh, the Rip Van Winkle Caper, uh, which is, I think, in a few weeks here. A um, couple interesting things about this. Douglas Hayes was originally going to uh, direct this episode, but uh, Justice Addis, according to Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, uh, was brought in almost at the last minute. Like when he was doing rehearsals and getting everything together, he was signing the paperwork to commit to shooting this this episode. Um, according to the according to Martin Graham's Jr., there's there's no indication of why uh, Douglas Hayes backed out or was removed. Um, so that's kind of a mystery. Another interesting thing about Justice Addis uh, that I found really interesting was that he was the life partner of actor Hayden Rourke, who played Sykes, the character that was going to bet the money from the bank loan on the horses in A Penny for Your Thoughts a few weeks ago. Um, kind of interesting. I, I don't know, just um, kind of interesting that, you know, two two openly gay men lived together and were life partners in the in the 60s. Uh, just an inter- interesting time to hear that like that they were you know so open and and uh presumably happily happy together so that's cool so um what i knew before going into the odyssey of flight 33 uh the title had me very excited for this episode um i love science fiction obviously and i love lost lost is one of my favorite shows of all time and so seeing a seeing a twilight zone episode that has to do with the plane kind of had my mind kind of wandering a little bit. And I was hoping for a mystery surrounding a plane full of passengers, obviously. Um, and I think that, I think what I, 
I I I understand somewhat what's coming in in uh, uh, season three, but um, I feel like what I think what what I thought this episode was going to have is something that it's going to happen in the arrival in season three. So anyway, um, I was kind of thinking that this episode would be something like that new, I think it's NBC show manifest, uh, which I haven't watched that, but I'm kind of intrigued by the premise. Apparently it's about a, a plane that disappear or a, a plane that takes off from one place. And then when they land, they're in a different, like it's like seven years in the future or something like that. And, uh, there's a whole mystery about, you know, what the hell happened. So, um, I feel like that show may have drawn some inspiration from this. Uh, from this episode. And, uh, yeah, I also found it interesting that this episode, uh, the Odyssey of flight 33 aired after an episode where a flight number was 22. Um, that's, you know, bare minimum of interesting facts and observations. So hopefully I can, uh, elevate this episode a little bit. So anyway, uh, going into the Odyssey of flight 33, um, I immediately recognized the pilot. I couldn't place where I knew him from until I looked him up later. John Anderson, of course. Um, I thought like he, his voice is so distinctive, but I was thinking of, uh, Robert Stack when I was, uh, when I was listening to him talking in, uh, and everything, it's kind of sounded like, uh, Robert Stack a little bit, but, um, as I said before, I recognized him. I eventually put it together that he was in, well, Passage for Trumpet, and he was also in, uh, Psycho. And I just, I really loved his performance in this episode. I'll get into that in a bit, but just he has this command of the cockpit, and he has this, uh, kind of jovial way about him, but he's also serious and he's, he's a leader in this episode. And I just really, uh, dug his performance and everything. Um, he said, according to unlocking the door to a television classic, he said that he was surprised when, uh, he watched the episode and he was surprised that he was able to, uh, recite all of the technical, uh, as he put it, gobbledygook. Um, so yeah, he seemed like a, seemed like a cool dude. Um, so yeah, as I said, the kind of the cockpit atmosphere, um, very jovial, very laid back and very friendly and everything. And I feel like the episode did a really spectacular job of showing how well the flight crew works together. Um, like, uh, like the pilot mentioning that he's, uh, he, he references in his announcement, uh, or his, his, I think he just says it to, uh, the crew now that I think about it, but he mentions his, uh, thanks to a tailwind or something and my brilliant flying. And he says it with like a little bit of a smirk. That's just, it's just, it's, it's laid back. It kind of brings you into a false sense of security with, with this episode. Um, and then soon after that, we get weirdness settling in with him noticing, a a sensation of speed. And it was kind of interesting to think about that. Uh, just the kind of thought exercise that, uh, you may not really be able to detect your speed in a plane in the air. Um, so just, I think it kind of speaks to the amount of the force of the tailwind that, uh, that it was detected and everything. So, uh, so he's kind of like figuring out like, oh, this, this is peculiar. Let's, let's kind of investigate it a little bit. And, uh, they reference Idlewild Airport. Um, of course, this episode was from 1961. Uh, Idlewild was renamed JFK International Airport after the assassination in 1963. And it looks like the name change happened about a month after, after the assassination in November of 63. So, um, I just thought that was mildly interesting. So as this is going, going down, the, um, flight attendant comes in and I, again, that kind of carries on this, jovial laid back and professional um kind of atmosphere in the cockpit like the the way that the flight attendant kind of is is very good natured and she has like this playful flirting where she mentions that she's available for a date from an eligible um member of the flight crew if if there is one or, or honorable or something like that um, it just kind of reinforces the authenticity. Like there's, there's a chemistry between all of these, all of these performers that just feels just so genuine and, um, coupled with the highly authentic, like aviation dialogue. It's just really easy to bring you into this setting in this world. So, uh, they recognize that their ground speed is massively increasing. Um, 
Um, the navigator, his name, his name in the credits is Navigator Hatch, I believe. Yeah, Navigator Hatch, played by Sandy Kenyon. Um, but, but the but the pilot keep refers to him as Magellan, and I'm like, for, for a while, I, I was like, like there's no reference to it or anything, and I was just like, is is that like just a nickname because Magellan? Um, it's just it's it, I thought it was interesting. I don't know, but anyway, um. The ground speed is massively increasing, and at this point, I kind of started to think, okay, the dialogue is maybe a little too technical, but it still works. Like, it feels authentic, but kind of at the detriment of, um, I, don't, I wouldn't say my enjoyment of the episode, but kind of at the detriment of uh, the overall episode, like, bringing us into it, uh, bringing us into the fold. It feels more like we're watching people uh, that are highly, highly trained and everything doing their work rather than experiencing what what's happening to them with them if the, if that makes sense like it's too it's almost too technical because i was like thinking like okay well like it kind of got me wondering like what's the difference between ground speed and airspeed <laughs> um and kind of the different technical aspects of it just kind of felt like uh we were observing rather than participating in with the uh in the story so, but on the, uh, on the flip side of that, it still feels authentic and it kind of still showcases the professionalism of the flight crew. Um, and it's evidence by, evident by, uh, the way that Serling says in the opening narration that they're a trained, cool, highly effective team. And, uh, yeah, that comes through really well. And kind of going back to my comment about airspeed and ground speed and everything, just to clear that up if, in case you're wondering, I, I didn't know this per, per se. I mean, it's pretty kind of obvious by context, but airspeed, according to Google, is the vector difference between the ground speed and the wind speed. Um, so when it's kind of perfectly still out, the airspeed is equal to the ground speed because there's no wind um, kind of slowing down the the aircraft. Uh, but if the wind is blowing in the same direction that the aircraft is moving, the airspeed will be less than the ground speed. So uh, kind of, so say for sake of argument that you're flying along at uh, according to Google, 150 knots into a 10 uh, knot headwind, you'll be moving through the air at 150 knots, but only moving along the ground at 140 knots. Uh, and true airspeed is the airspeed at which the aircraft is moving through the air. So that kind of, I guess, clarifies or gets more information to uh, the pilot's line later in the episode where he says that, well, airspeed is the only one that really matters. So... At this point, I was wondering if they were ever going to land the the plane, um, or if it was, or if the episode was going to be com- contained completely to the cockpit set. Um, I was wrong on both counts, and also just to mention, um, the I I assume it's why well, I would assume it would have to be stock footage, but the shots of the exterior of the plane just demonstrates just how, like. I don't know exactly how to articulate it uh, or articulate why I feel this way, but just it it really did a good job of demonstrating just how big the plane is. Like it's clearly a a jet airliner um, that's that's looks pretty massive and everything. So anyway, um, in Serling's narration, I kind of found it interesting that he references the title. Like it's not like he was referencing a turn of phrase that happens to also be the title of the episode. He was specifically telling us that this episode is called the Odyssey of flight 33. Um, and I just found that interesting. It wasn't, I can't remember offhand, like anytime I'm sure that he's done that before. Um, especially this deep into the series, but I just can't remember it's, uh, yeah, I, I just, I can't remember a specific example of that. Um, but yeah, the way he phrases it is that it's, uh, what you're about to see, we call the Odyssey of Flight 33. It kind of reminds me of his, um, ad, his advertisements at the end of each episode, advertising the next week's episode. Um, but it's interesting that's in the opening narration. So, uh, also in the opening narration, I do want to point out that he said, but what you've just seen occur inside the cockpit of this plane is no reflection of the aircraft or the crew. It's a safe, well-engineered, perfectly designed machine. And the men you've just met are a trained, cool, highly efficient team. So I kind of wonder, and, and I don't, I don't think this is the case because I have not been able to find anything to this effect, but I kind of wonder if that was maybe intentional, um, uh, intentional wording by Serling to, uh, kind of 
just because just because the cockpit that they were the cockpit set they were using was from American Airlines and uh maybe he felt like he should mention that uh you know the plane is safe um just to not get any pushback from the um uh, from the airline or the studio or anything i kind of wondered there was nothing in my research to indicate that that was ever uh, a thing so it's purely conjecture on my part but i kind of wonder like a little piece of uh, a little uh in the back of my mind there's a little kind of thought that that could be it so after uh the opening narration and yeah, at, at this point, um, we get the flight attendant kind of coaching Paula, the other flight attendant, uh, to make sure that she doesn't alert the passengers of anything that's wrong. And this, I thought, was uh, was a nice scene. Like these actresses are, um, are really good at their and and at their roles in this episode. And I think that the, this scene in particular was kind of a classic, like, um, customer service kind of uh, put on a smile in the face of, uh, concern or uh, eerie or supernatural uh, situations. Um, then we get our one and only, yeah, wow, our one and only scene with the passengers. Um, I believe it's the only, yeah, it has to, or, well, speaking scenes with the passengers. And I got excited because I was like, oh, sweet, we're going to learn about the passengers. And then, like, there was going to be subplots involving the passengers. And I was kind of bummed that that doesn't go anywhere like the one scene that we have is a uh, british guy talking with a talkative neighbor on the uh, plane uh in the seat next to him and that's what like the passengers notice the speed and increasing and everything and that's kind of they i don't know they they kind of realize like oh something's amiss here and i don't know it's just kind of too bad that we don't get to learn about the passengers or see their perspective on the situation at all but i mean i get it like this is a very tightly written episode like it's very the pacing is is pitch perfect um so i don't know how they could have possibly fit in any subplots involving the passengers or the passengers reactions or if we even really needed it because we get enough of the tension and everything from the flight crew um that i feel like if we were to see anything from the passengers it would just be redundant and not constructive to the narrative of the episode anyway because we've got that sensation and that tension from the flight crew who are working to do that like we know like we know that the plane is filled with passengers we know that it's you know we know what the stakes are i guess we don't really need to see panic throughout the passengers but i still kind of think that it's a little there was something missing just a little bit here. Like we, like the one scene I could have maybe stood to take like one or two other scenes as well. In addition to that scene with members of the, of the passengers and, and to see what was going on behind the cockpit. But I, like I said, I get it. It's a minor gripe. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, it's a minor gripe, but it doesn't derail the story or uh, per se, or derail my enjoyment of the episode. And so on that note, I like the tension a lot. Um, so the kind of simple way that the signature like Twilight Zone change or weird occurrence, uh, the simple way that that's implemented um, in the episode goes such a long way. Like when we couple that with the flight crew who is aware, they're more aware of the specifics of why it's irregular. Like they they notice like, oh, we're going we're going really fast through this, like this tailwind is picking up a, like a ridiculous amount of speed, or we've just broken the sound barrier. Like if we get the passengers, uh, perspective on that, it's a completely different story because they don't like, presumably they won't know like, okay, they don't know the specifics of air traveler or the mechanics of aviation and everything. Um, so they wouldn't be able to kind of know specifically what's, wrong and that's one of the strengths of the episodes that were there with the film with the flight crew um even though the even though i mentioned that the dialogue is a little too technical for that we're still there and experiencing it and we're we're in their perspective so yeah so at this point they break the sound barrier um and i i really liked that's kind of the i don't want to say that's the biggest special effect um because obviously the dinosaur is a big one but um when they break through the sound barrier um 
that scene in general is really great because they like that's when they're starting to bicker kind of in a professional manner but they're still like the tension is kind of starting to get to the flight crew in in the cockpit and they're kind of bickering back and forth trying to figure out what to, what to do and then they bust through the sound barrier and like the lighting and the sound effects of that um is really good and it kind of quiet quiets people down and, and it kind of shifts uh to a different stage of the of the supernatural or the uh unknowable situation that they're in and so at this point they reference that they're going 3,000 knots uh when earlier they said that 900 was impossible um just knowing that i i like that piece of writing because we obviously as as the audience the vast majority of us don't know uh what the standard is for air travel or we don't know like what we don't know specifically like what is abnormal or or normal with this particular setting. So establishing that earlier that, oh, we're going 900, that's 900 knots. Uh, I think that was airspeed. Yeah. Or that might've been ground speed. I don't know. But anyway, 900 knots, that's impossible. And then suddenly like a little bit later, we're, they're going 3000. Like that's unreal. Like that's unimaginable. Um, and I just, I like that, that that's a good way to kind of signal to us just how severe their situation is. And when the pilot is talking about lowering the altitude to get their bearings by just visuals, he says, we'll run smack dab into other flight paths. Like that idea alone is freaking terrifying to me. Like the idea that they're like, they're obviously above this overcast. They can't see anything below them. Like the idea, like you think about it, there are hundreds of flights at any given time in the air. Like it's kind of an impressive feat of human engineering. Like there's, you know, it's kind of crazy to think like, Oh my God, there's, you know, people are just flying in metal tubes in in the air all day, every day and all night. Um, it's just, it's crazy to me. But anyway, um, so the idea that they are in such dire straits that they need to abandon their flight path and go down and just make visual, um, recognition of, of like where they are and figure out how to land from there is just terrifying because just the thought of, you know, going down through the clouds and then possibly like crossing paths with another, uh, flight plan. It's like, it's, it's nuts. It's, it's absolutely terrifying to me. Um, but I, I love the pilot's whole demeanor. Like I, like I said earlier, he's a leader. John Anderson does a fantastic job here. He makes, and it makes me want to kind of revisit his performance in a passage for trumpet and psycho for that matter. But, um, he's just got this just cool, calm, collect, but earnest and straightforward kind of way about him. Um, that comes into play later with he, when he announces like what's going on to the, to the passengers. um, I just, I just love his demeanor. I think, I think John Anderson did a fantastic job. So they lowered their altitude and they see Manhattan Island, but there are no landmarks or anything. Uh, the way that they put it is that it's like, um, that's Manhattan Island, but everything's gone. Like they're like, uh, all the buildings and people have disappeared. And my, I, I wouldn't say this is a gripe or nitpick or anything, but just, I, I kind of wish, part of me just kind of wishes that there was a way that they could have shown that, like the way that they showed the dinosaur. I kind of wish that they could have shown just a shot of prehistoric Manhattan. Um, like, I think that would have been really cool, but, um, it's, that's fine. It's fine that they didn't or couldn't, or it wasn't part of the episode, but the next, <laughs> the next shot is maybe, like this is what episode 54 of the twilight zone, I think. And <laughs> the shot of the brontosaurus was one of like, it got probably one of the biggest reactions out of me when watching this episode, when watching the twilight zone for this whole, for this whole podcast, every episode that's preceded this, I have not reacted as, as big, bigly. Oh my God. As, uh, I have as strongly as, uh, as I did when I saw the freaking dinosaur, <laughs> like I wrote in all caps on my notes, what, uh, dinosaurs. And then ha 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 over and over again. Um, I was like, I had to pause it and I was just like, this is insane. Like I had no idea that, uh, they were, that they were traveling back and like, I knew that I knew that they were, there was some time travel involved because when I went to play the episode on Netflix, um, cause I was too lazy to put in the disc, um, for my, for my DVD set. Um, uh, when I went to 
uh, play it on Netflix, it shows like I just caught time travel or traveling through time or whatever in the plot description. So uh, that was on me, but I had no idea that that's what was going to happen. And I was so delighted by that. It was just such a cool, um, just such a cool shot and such a cool uh, moment. And yeah, it was definitely super unexpected to me. Uh, I just, I, I loved it. <laughs> it was, it was fantastic. And at this point I kind of started like, this was, this was such a fun episode for me because like I said, I'm a huge fan of lost and, uh, I'm also a huge fan of Stephen King and it's, um, as evidenced by the fact that I have a podcast called tower junkies, which you can check out at towerjunkiespod.com. But anyway, um, but one of my Stephen King blind spots is The Langoliers, which is a novella that he had, which was in one of his uh, short story collections. Maybe Skeleton Crew or Four Past Midnight. I don't know. But anyway, um, he that was from 1990, and that was obviously adapted into a movie called The Langoliers. And it's very much, it's, from what I understand, because it's one of my blind spots, I haven't seen or watched it, but it is very similar to, like, this. it's basically this premise. And apparently it references the novella references this uh, episode, the twilight zone. But anyway, at this point, like this plot device, this idea that this plane filled with passengers uh, that we see once or twice um, is kind of just like going through this scenario, traveling backwards through time or traveling through time. Um, completely by accident is so interesting to me. One of my favorite episodes from season one was The Last Flight, and it's kind of similar uh, to it. Well, they both, the only real similarity is that it involves planes and time travel. But I just, I love time travel as a concept. And like I said before, Lost is one of my favorite shows of, of all time. And I've lamented that there's like as many, uh, as many, years that have passed since lost went off the air in 2010. Uh, I don't think any show has been able, like networks have tried so hard to recapture the lightning in, in a bottle that was lost and they can't do it. But I feel like this, the premise of this episode, like I would, I would totally be up for seeing it repurposed, um, or updated and made into a lost style mystery series. Um, and it kind of, I don't want to say it kind of was because it's, it's completely different, but there was a show in 2011 called Terra Nova that I honestly, I, I think I may have seen the first episode. No, I don't think I did. I've, I've never watched it. But anyway, the plot description of that is that it centers on the Shannons, an ordinary family from 2149 when the planet is dying, who are transported back 85 million years to prehistoric earth where they join Terra Nova, a colony of humans with a second chance to rebuild a civilization or to build a civilization. Um, yeah, so it's kind of just tangentially similar to this, but anyway, um, I just, I dug this, uh, this plot device, this, this, uh, situation, everything. I thought it was really interesting. And so at this point when they realize that, Oh, there's no, we can't land here. Like it's just, it's, you know, there's no way, uh, to do this. Like, there's no way for us to, we need to go back essentially, uh, not to quote lost, but, um, so they try to reverse it, which I feel like that's, it's, <laughs> um, oh crap. There was an episode. I feel like there was an episode of the original Star Trek that kind of did the same thing where they had to just kind of reverse, uh, reverse, uh, some kind of time travel thing. Maybe an almost a very similar plot. Now that I think about it, um, cause I remember there was an episode where the enterprise is in like the, uh, the sixties or something. But anyway, um, when they try to reverse it, uh, I, I just love the demeanor of the flight crew. Like this is, this is their job. They're doing their job in the face of an incredibly, um, abnormal and terrifying situation. And when they go back and they go through the tailwind again and through the, presumable wormhole of time, uh, it works. Um, and like it, they realize that they, they go through it and it's, it is all the same trappings of what happened before happen again. So they think, Oh, it worked. And at that point I was just like, that was kind of anticlimactic. Um, I kind of felt like, um, in the moment I kind of felt like they, I wanted them to kind of not live in prehistoric times, but like have like some kind of uh, I, I thought that that's the direction that the episode was going to go, that they were going to land and it was going to be like a, 
a sound of thunder kind of kind of story but uh then immediately i was like well okay so since it, since it worked obviously they're not in their normal time and uh, immediately after that they're like yep we're in 1939 it's the new york world's fair this is kind of crazy and i don't know like i i don't uh, like even though i thought okay even though i thought for a brief moment that it could have been cool for like, kind of a prehistoric like seeing an aircraft in prehistoric times is an interesting idea and uh i would have been i would have been satisfied with a storyline that took place in prehistoric times with their air travel and everything uh kind of a flight of the phoenix kind of thing where they try to you know uh they land there or whatever but anyway um what we got though like i love that idea i like the idea of them trying to reverse it and really the entire concept of this aerial flying dutchman story uh deep down it's just it's absolutely terrifying <laughs> like it is it is a horrifying premise um i don't have much anxiety about flying um, I really don't. I like. I, I think I. Yeah. When I said in my nightmare at thirty thousand feet review last week, um, I mean I've I haven't done like any like transatlantic flights or anything, or I haven't I haven't flown across the pond as it were, um, but I've only I've flown across the continental United States, and I don't have any anxiety over that. I like I like flights because I can just sit there and listen to audiobooks or podcasts or whatever. I don't have any anxiety about flying. Like I just, I don't, but there is something that's inherently frightening about this specific story. Like the idea of like, there's this, there's this ticking, there's this ticking clock that's occurring in this. Like they can't land until they're in their right place. Like that's, they just can't do it. Um, and so there's this ticking clock of fuel and they, 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 it's in the, it's in the dialogue a little bit, but it's also kind of, that's one of, one of my small gripes about the, the technical aspect of that. Cause while we have the, the speed reading, uh, as good content, providing good context and everything, when they get a check on how much fuel they have, they say like, Oh, we have however many thousand gallons or whatever. Um, we don't get the, we don't get the context of that. We don't know where that is. Like, is it, is it at a full tank of gas? Is it in a half tank of gas? Are they going to have to stop at the gas station? Like, like what is the time frame of that? And like, there is a line where John Anderson says that, uh, it guzzles fuel and everything. But again, we don't have like a, um, uh, we don't have like, there's, it's this ticking clock that we can't see the display of like, and I think that that's somewhat to the detriment of it. Like it could have been more tense if we had like a ticking, like a literal ticking clock of fuel and everything. But, um, but that just the thought of that alone is what makes this, this whole premise, premise fight, uh, frightening to me. Um, because it's just, it goes against like the structure of air travel. Like, you know, you, okay, we're going to take off from here. We're going to land here at this time. Uh, enjoy your flight. Here's some peanuts. But the idea that they are lost in the sky is absolutely just terrifying uh, to me. Um, and I really appreciate the episode for that um, with some caveats. But anyway, so after that, the flight attendant comes back into the cockpit and she asks the pilot to make an announcement because the passengers are, as she says, nearly hysterical. And then she references two kids uh, that have everyone kind of like climbing the walls Um and I don't know, that line just, it didn't necessarily, it's not that it didn't sit well with me, it just kind of reinforced how much I, I kind of wish that there had been more scenes with the passengers. Like, I would have liked to have seen, like, just a shot of the passengers, not necessarily panicking, but just noticing and, and realizing just, like, how much trouble they're in. Um, but again, like, the episode is paced really well, so I don't know how they could have possibly incorporated that. Um, into the final product. So it's kind of a catch 22. Like I wanted more, but I recognize that the episode probably would have suffered if they included more. Um, and the final product of what we got is a, by my count, a spectacularly well-paced, uh, piece of television. So when the pilot makes his final announcement though, um, he makes throughout the, throughout the episode, he makes three announcements to the passengers. I believe one is, uh, uh, the first two, basically the first two show just the cabin. They show the passengers in their seats, but the final one is just a close up to the speakers. And I thought that that was really weird and kind of, I, it didn't really fit well with me 
in the episode because when he makes that final announcement, because the the camera is just like showing the speakers above the um I don't know if it's technically even the speakers. I just now that I think about it, but just like the overhead um ceiling uh above the seats and everything is just panning across that. It's a close up of that so you don't see any of the passengers. I really thought that this was going to that there was going to be some something wrong with the passengers or that I was going to reveal that they had disappeared, which again, we'll see in a uh early next season, I believe. But I just, I just thought that that was kind of peculiar. Like that was a peculiar shot, and I don't understand like why it was. Maybe they didn't get the coverage um, of the passengers, or, or maybe I, I don't know. It was kind of, uh, well, I guess, I guess if they had shown the passengers, they would have had to have had to have shown them in panic mode. And I think that that probably, well, now that I think about it, it probably would have been a little detrimental to the pacing and the. Um, energy of the episode because when we get that final announcement the pilot's saying like okay well it's time to bring the passengers in on it and by the way I, I love that concept of ending that on ending it on that uh on that fact like he is he's out of ideas like this this whole um this whole idea like they're they're completely out of ideas um so he's bringing it in and bringing them into it i just realized i I think I just skipped like a whole bunch of stuff uh, that I didn't really have any notes for. But anyway, um, I just like that he's bringing them into this uh, scenario and everything. And it's kind of like this group kind of thing, which again, kind of reinforces this idea that I have that like, it would be cool to see this type of story played out in a lost style mystery show because it's kind of a communal thing uh, or there's hints of like a communal uh, kind of thing as they go through this terrible journey and curse cursed flight essentially um but to kind of backtrack when they get back to when they're in 1939 the dialogue between the uh laguardia laguardia um uh tower i guess um is good like it's, it's all good like when they realize that uh like they they don't re- they don't know what radar is they don't know what they're talking about when they said the it's a jet um like all that's good. It's 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 good stuff and everything. I kind of, I don't know if I necessarily want. I don't know if it necessarily left me wanting that wanting like the Laguardia people to realize that like like maybe see the plane and be like, oh crap, this thing has like four massive engines. This is nuts. But again, that kind of would go against the kind of aesthetic of the entire episode because it's all contained to this plane and i i really dug that part of this episode or this that aspect of this episode so anyway um kind of winding down really the kind of terror in the whole tragedy of this entire episode is the thought that global 33 is going to run out of fuel and it's absolutely terrifying and i absolutely love that this episode ends not on a cliffhanger but just it's an open-ended episode the situation isn't resolved at all and we're just left kind of we're kind of we're left in the tailwind i guess of uh, of the of the story and we're left with serling's really um ominous uh closing narration where he says uh you and i know what's happened so if some moment any moment you hear the sound of jet engines flying atop the overcast engines that sound searching and lost engines that sound desperate shoot up a flare or do something that would be global 33 trying to get home from the twilight zone and i absolutely love that uh closing narration and that that idea like the the idea that the ending of this episode is so abstract and open-ended and it's just unresolved that's what i'm looking for it's so unresolved in the idea that okay this this flight this this cursed flight is still um uh crossing the skies above us for presumably eternity i guess or until the until the fuel runs out and they crash and die but um, (laughs) it's uh i i just love i love that i love that i love the episode for that um yeah, and I think that will do it for this, uh, not this episode, Jesus, um, the review portion of this episode. Uh, trivia for the Odyssey of Flight 33. I mentioned the Flying Dutchman. So this whole episode is a modern retelling of the Flying Dutchman myth, which, according to Wikipedia, uh, the Flying Dutchman is a legendary ghost ship that can never make port and is doomed to sail the oceans forever. Um, my, uh, my... 
uh, context for the Flying Dutchman, or my association with the Flying Dutchman, is that uh, it is referenced in the Pirates of the Caribbean uh, film series that had like one good movie and a bunch of uh, not so good movies. The Brontosaurus model and miniature jungle set uh, in the episode came from the 1960 film Dinosaurs. Um, like, uh, well, it didn't come from the film, so. The 1960 film Dinosaurs had Brontosaurus, uh, the Brontosaurus model in a miniature jungle set that was used for the stop motion animation in this episode. So the actual uh, special effect, I guess, I think, I want to say I read somewhere, I didn't put it in my notes, but I read somewhere that this was one, one of the costliest special effects shot in the entire run of the Twilight Zone. And to kind of further put that in context, they... Uh, did that all in kind of post-production and everything. So they basically, it's not that they were reusing footage from, from it, but they had, I guess, commissioned the staff of, of, uh, what was it? Project Unlimited. I believe they were a special effects crew, I guess, or a animation department or, or company. Uh, but they were creating footage for dinosaurs, uh, from the 1960, uh, universal film. And so basically the twilight zone had commissioned them to create footage of the dinosaur, um, in the jungle specifically for the twilight zone. It was an, it was stop motion animation. They just needed less than 60 seconds, less than 60 seconds of footage. So sorry. Um, and that's what they would need. So, uh, the, entire cost of the special effects that, that special effects shot was, uh, came to a total of, three thousand nine hundred and forty dollars um and that's in 1961 um that's that's nuts um to put it into context the highest paid actor for this episode was john anderson who received eight hundred dollars for his work in this episode and like that's just it's that's kind of nuts to me um kind of crazy so anyway um that's that's neat um (laughs) And, uh, I mentioned a lot about how I kind of wish that there was, um, more to do with the passengers and more and more information about the passengers of the plane. And it's interesting to note that this episode was one of several Twilight Zone stories that was adapted as a graphic novel. Um, and apparently the adaptation, uh, the graphic novel expands upon, uh, the story by including a subplot, including, uh, uh, involving several passengers and flight crew. And apparently it also updates the story to take place in 1973. I have ordered the graphic novel from Amazon. Um, and I will report back on how it is in a future episode. Um, some other, <laughs> like, it, I think that, I think they're maybe out of print now. Cause they, these are from a while ago. Um, I think I had to buy this one from a third party, uh, seller on Amazon, but I, I'm so kind of bummed or it's now on my radar that there's an, um, monsters are due on Maple street graphic novel from the same, uh, company and everything in the same thing. By the way, look up these things, uh, these, these graphic novels, cause the cover art is spectacular. Like it looks beautiful, very colorful and vibrant. Um, in like the, the way that the, that the people are drawn and it's just like, there's such a uniqueness to it that I can't really put my finger on, but it's just, they're gorgeous, uh, graphic novel covers. But, um, I really want to get my hands on the monsters of Doom on Maple street one. Um, because that's my favorite episode so far. And, uh, I want to see how it translates to the graphic novel. So maybe someday I'll find it cheaper. Cause I think it was like, I think on Amazon, like through the third party thing, it was like 30 bucks or something. I was like, I can't justify that. But anyway, uh, I'll report back on the graphic novel when it comes in. Also, speaking of graphic novels, I kind of went on a little bit of a, um, treat myself kind of thing where I, I ordered, uh, the, uh, J. Uh, J. Michael Straczynski Twilight Zone, uh, graphic novels. Um, I believe it's only three volumes. I've, uh, the first two volumes actually came today and I think tomorrow or, you know, next week, uh, the third volume will come in the mail, but I'm really excited to check those out. Um, I'm looking at them now and they look pretty cool. So that's, that's pretty awesome. Um, so yeah, overall the Odyssey of Flight 33, I really, really enjoyed this episode. I really dug it. It was, um, it was very thrilling in a, in a very unique kind of, uh, 
contained way. Like it's like the episode is contained to the cockpit set and the cabin set and with some exterior shots and some, obviously the almost $4,000 special effects shot of a, of a dinosaur. Um, but it is completely contained to the story of the, of the flight crew and this flight crew. Um, again, it's just, it's the chemistry and the energy that these actors, uh, bring to the roles to their roles is just outstanding to me. Like it is the, it is a standout of this episode that these, uh, these performers got performed this well and felt so genuine and authentic. And part of that is due to the very authentic at times, a little too technical dialogue and everything courtesy of Robert Serling. But, um, I think that without the, chemistry in the just the atmosphere of their performance um with lesser with lesser chemistry in the in the cockpit i think that this episode could have failed miserably um and could have just felt uh like a like a training video or technical video or whatever um but since they since the actors brought their a game it really uh stands out as a very unique and interesting episode to me um, on that note, actually, John Anderson said that, quote, this is from uh, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. He said, quote, we looked damn serious doing that show, but we had a blast filming that. The guys playing my co-pilots were great. The director had trouble getting us settled because we were having so much fun. When you see me looking out, looking out at the dinosaur, I'm really looking at the poor director. As soon as he'd yell cut, we were cracking jokes again. We were confined, we were confined to this little cockpit whenever the director said there's a dinosaur we had to pretend that it was out there i saw the episode recently and i was amazed i was able to spew out the technical uh, gobbledygook which i mentioned earlier so uh yeah that is just about it for this episode i think so um i did mention earlier i think in this recording uh that i was thinking about doing uh maybe not i don't know i i don't know if i'd say re restructuring or anything, but I had an idea for, um, for the podcast going forward. And I don't know if I'll pull the trigger on this, but I just wanted to put this out there that, um, I really loved doing the bonus reviews each episode, but it got kind of cumbersome. And like, sometimes I would get stressed out, like thinking like, okay, I don't know what, uh, what title from, you know, the fifties and sixties I could, I could grab, (laughs) I could, uh, grab out of, like the internet and everything to comment on and everything. So one of the other things that I've done recently is I bought, uh, the first two and only seasons of the original outer limits on DVD, um, which I, I'm beating myself up. Cause why didn't I get them on Blu-ray? I don't, I don't know why I didn't, why I did that, but I also bought science fiction theater, the complete series, which science fiction theater ran from 1955 to 1957. It was, uh, George McFly's favorite show, according to back to the future. But, um, I also picked up science fiction theater, um, a complete history of the television program or whatever it's called by Martin Grahams Jr. Who wrote unlocking the door to a television classic. And I was thinking here in a few weeks, I was, I'm considering bringing back bonus reviews, but instead of doing like bonus reviews that are related in some way to the episode of the Twilight Zone that I'm reviewing, what if I just go through science fiction theater and do like mini bonus reviews, um, as I go along the Twilight Zone? And my kind of thought for that is that when, when I started this podcast freaking four years ago, um, sorry for the hiatuses, guys, I'm, I swear, um, when I started this podcast, my idea, was when I get through the Twilight Zone, I'm going to do the Outer Limits. And when I get through the Outer Limits, I'm going to go back and do science fiction theater or One Step Beyond or uh, some other, like Tales of Tomorrow, like other just classic um, science fiction anthology shows. But obviously, you know, that era of television, first of all, it's not easily accessible. Um, I'm fortunate that they have a complete series box set DVD of science fiction theater and that one step beyond is available on Amazon prime. Um, but I don't know, it's kind of harder to find, but also the twilight zone and the outer limits. Those are the big dogs. Those are the two big shows from that era. And my thought is, and maybe I'm just, maybe this is sharing too much or whatever, but let me know what you guys think. But my thought is that 
dedicate like I would be better served sticking to the Twilight Zone and the Outer Limits and maybe eventually down the way down the road another four or five years uh, covering the like 80s and 90s reboots of of each respective show um, and not sticking to the classic structure. So my thought is pairing like I would basically do uh, the Twilight Zone episode, just like I did this episode, just like I do every episode, um, same amount of work, same amount of commitment to it, and then end the show with a bonus review of an episode of science fiction theater in in chronological order. Um, something I'm mulling over, I don't know if I'm going to pull the trigger on it. I really don't know if I'm going to pull the trigger on it because, um, it's a, it, even if I'm, even if I'm not as diving as deep into those episodes as I would, as I am with the twilight zone. Um, it's still a little bit of work and, and, uh, I don't want to get burnt out or go on any other hiatuses or anything. So anyway, if you, and also another side of that is that science fiction theater is not easily accessible unless you have the DVD set. And I don't know, it's, it's kind of a thing. If you guys are interested in hearing me talk, briefly about episodes of science fiction theater kind of as a cool down for the episode or if you just want me to stick to the twilight zone let me know just just shoot me an email matt at obsessiveviewer.com tweet me at ov anthology pod or send me a message on facebook at facebook.com slash uh, slash anthology pod um and let me know what you think i'm just kind of it's something that i'm kind of throwing out there and i'm kind of thinking about um yeah and another part uh, another thing about it is that i'm it's an uh, Actually, uh, Rochelle, uh, from Germany, one of, one of my listeners had emailed and I need to email her back. I'm so sorry, Rochelle, if you're listening, I'm so sorry. Um, I've just been busy, but, um, I, she had mentioned that like she had lamented the loss of the bonus reviews and everything. So I'm kind of thinking that this might be a fun, like middle ground, um, to do this. It wouldn't be spoiler reviews or anything. Like I said, it won't be a deep dive, but I like, I've seen a couple episodes of science fiction theater and I'm, I'm enjoying it. And I feel like, I don't know. I feel like it could be a fun bonus, uh, bonus for each episode. So let me know what you think. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I'll make a decision, uh, in the coming weeks. Probably if those won't, those probably wouldn't start until like, uh, June maybe. But anyway, uh, that'll do it for this episode of Anthology. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. I, I really appreciate, uh, you guys taking the time to letting me, uh, to let me, um, <laughs> say these nonsense words into, <laughs> into your ears. Um, this episode is going to like, if you're listening this day of the release, then, um, it's Wednesday. Happy Wednesday. But, uh, tomorrow the new twilight zone episode comes out replay, um, episode three from the first season. And I am really hoping, I'm really hoping that I can commit to, uh, watching it and reviewing it and getting a, uh, bonus, bonus episode released on friday so be looking on the feed for for that and if it is past that and you are in the future uh check out the archive at anthologypod.com slash archive so that'll do it for this episode thank you guys so much for listening and thank you so much for bearing with me as i go through my uh crazy neurotic um um thoughts for plans for the future of the podcast um yeah so thank you guys so much for listening and i'll see you next time And now, here's a clip from a recent episode of Tower Junkies, a podcast exploring the work of Stephen King from ObsessiveViewer.com. That's what I was like. So I want, I want like a an anthology series with standalone episodes based on the works of Stephen King. I would want that. Yeah. Um, and it's asking a lot because we already have a lot of stuff: Castle Rock, the It adaptations, Pet Cemetery, um, new books every year, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, like we are very spoiled. But God, how great would that be? That'd be um, cool. Yeah, it would be it would be awesome. And it would be the perfect marriage of Tower Junkies and Anthology. Um obsessive yeah. viewers, you know, they can we can that show can do whatever it wants. <laughs> um but Anthology is edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by obsessiveviewer.com. For a full archive of our episodes, go to anthologypod.com slash archive. You can also like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod and follow the show on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. 
If you enjoy the show, please take a couple minutes to leave us a rating and a quick review on Apple Podcasts. This is the easiest way to support what we do, and all it costs is a little bit of your time. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can make a PayPal donation at anthologypod.com slash donate, or support us on Patreon for recurring donations and access to commentary tracks and B-roll audio recorded exclusively for patrons at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Every donation goes toward paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. Official Anthology merch, including shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more, can be found in the Obsessive Viewer's Tee Public store. You can find a link to the store in the show notes of this episode and at anthologypod.com slash donate. Or you can simply search for Obsessive Viewer at teepublic.com. For information about the Obsessive Viewer's annual live event showcasing short horror films from local filmmakers, check out shocktoberinirvington.com. And for an archive of all our events, as well as news about potential future events, head over to obsessiveviewer.com slash live. For more podcast content, you can find our flagship movie and TV review and discussion show, The Obsessive Viewer Podcast, at obsessiveviewer.com, and on Twitter at obsessiveviewer. You can also find Tower Junkies, a podcast where Matt and co-host Tiny share their love of all things Stephen King and his magnum opus, The Dark Tower Series, over at TowerJunkiesPod.com and at TowerJunkiesPod on Twitter. And finally, check out The Secular Perspective, Tiny's side project podcast, which tackles current events and life's big questions from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda at TheSecularPerspective.com. Bumper music for this podcast comes courtesy of As Good As It Gets, which can be found at facebook.com slash asgoodasitgetsband. You can also find As Good As It Gets music on Spotify, Google Play, and iTunes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.